0: On Tuesday, Pfizer officially began submitting data to the FDA to potentially get two doses authorized for kids between six months old and five years old.
1: Carolyn Johnson covers science for The Post.
0: This would be the kind of last age group to become eligible for a vaccine. And with the Omicron surge, there's been a lot of parents dealing with quarantines and constant closures, navigating a lot of uncertainty. So there's this huge interest in this vaccine.
1: For so many families around the country, this development is an enormous deal. This faint glimmer of hope that maybe someday soon, their lives will get more normal. But understanding what this announcement actually means is a little complicated. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 2nd. Today, what we know so far about the two-dose Pfizer vaccine for children under five, and the questions that our reporters still have. It is rare for kids to get seriously ill from COVID. But more kids were hospitalized with COVID during this recent surge than in previous waves. And that's why there's this push to try to make a vaccination plan for young kids as quickly as possible. Pfizer has started submitting data about the trials they conducted on young kids with two doses of the vaccine. But they're also going to keep going on trials for giving kids three doses. We wanted to know from Carolyn what the timeline for that could actually look like.
0: So the company announced yesterday that they are submitting data. Right now, they're submitting two-dose data. We don't really know what it says, but we will find out probably next week because prior to this meeting of experts, what happens is the company and the FDA both separately post a big data dump of everything they're presenting. So you get the company's point of view about what the data shows. You also get the FDA's point of view. Sometimes those match up super well. Sometimes you hear more like skepticism or questions from the hmm. FDA than the company. Then on Tuesday, February 15th, there will be this all-day meeting, a lot of debate about this. The company will make a presentation. The FDA will make a presentation. There'll be questions and answers. There will probably will be a vote about you know, suggesting to the agency how to move forward. And then after that, the FDA will make a decision about how to proceed. They could decide to do an authorization for two doses, for example, Hmm. in this age group. They could decide other things as well. We will just have to see. And they, they could decide not to go forward. But it's pretty clear that the government wants to start this discussion. After that, The CDC will have a similar process where a group of outside advisors will also review the data, make recommendations about how the vaccine should be used in the real-world population of six-months to five-year-old kids, and the CDC director will make a recommendation. So this is the same process we saw go on with all the other vaccine authorizations, but it's got a lot of pressure on it, <laughs> and it's, it is moving mm-hmm. quite quickly. The projection has been that a decision could be made before the end of the month, and, you know, I guess that would suggest maybe vaccinations could begin by March.
1: Carolyn says that there are some important things you need to know about this vaccine regimen. First off, it's not like these kids are getting the same Pfizer shot that's being given to adults.
0: It's a much lower dose in these little kids. It's like a tenth of the dose that you got if you got a Pfizer shot.
1: And from the data that's been released from clinical trials so far, it seems like these vaccines are very safe for small children.
0: I mean, the safety profile of this vaccine looks quite good. I mean, we have seen it used in millions of 5 to 11-year-olds at a higher dose. It looks extremely good there.
1: But there is an open question about just how effective these vaccines will be for kids under the age of five and how much their immunity increases when they're given a third dose. These are questions that will be asked and vetted by the FDA and the CDC, just like what we saw in other phases of the vaccine rollout. But while some say these vaccines have been moving way too slowly, others say this is moving too fast.
0: What is different about this is that in mid-December, Pfizer reported that the vaccine in children was safe in this age group, but that in two to four-year-olds, it didn't meet the success criteria of their trial, which was a huge disappointment. It meant that they were going to add a third dose on because it wasn't that the vaccine didn't look like it was going to work. It just didn't raise the immune response high enough. And that was kind of the success criteria. So they added on a third dose at least two months after the full vaccination. And that just is going to extend the trial. It meant, you know, people just started looking at the calendar and they were like, oh, my gosh, this means, you know, could my kid be fully vaccinated by the end of the summer? You know, a lot of despair because people had been hoping the vaccine would have been available this winter.
1: So basically it sounds like though the vaccine was effective in kids between six months and two years old, that in this one age group of kids between two and four years old, the results didn't really reach the bar that they wanted it to. So they thought, okay, well, what if we add a third dose here? And maybe that will kind of bring kids up to the level of immunity that we want to see in children who are considered fully vaccinated.
0: Yes. And I mean, this was also happening in the context of the growing recognition that three doses were really needed to be protective, potentially in all ages.
1: But then how is it that that Pfizer is moving along with the process if they're still in the middle of trying to figure out whether this third dose will bring immunity to the level that they want? Like, why are they applying for approval while we're still waiting to hear what the results are from a third dose?
0: That is a very unusual part of the situation. Pfizer in December said, we're going to go back, do the third dose. We'll submit that data when we have it. They were talking about timelines of like the first half of the year. That's disappointing. What happened in the middle of this is Omicron happened. The number of cases, the hospitalization rate in children being worse than is acceptable, and just the level of frustration and not being able to protect children during this huge wave Happened. And so the FDA asked Pfizer to submit the data they have on two doses so they could start the process. Government officials have been thinking, you know, one of the ideas here is that you could start building immunity in these children if Hmm. this vaccine is safe. And so the idea was to start building the immunity with two doses instead of waiting for the third dose. That is extremely unusual. Mm-hmm. And that is like this weird building the plane and flying it at the same time <laughs> thing we've been in during this pandemic.
1: So it sounds like the idea here is that, that they are confident that the vaccine is safe for kids under the age of five. And while they're still trying to figure out how effective it will be after a third dose, that they don't want a situation where that approval doesn't happen until months from now, and then it still takes many months for kids to get those three doses that you can kind of like start with them off with these two doses, and then by the time they're ready for a third dose, theoretically, the vaccine will be approved for third doses in, in that age group.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're still, we honestly haven't seen the data. We haven't heard it articulated from some kind of very official Platform yet, but yes, this is the thinking. And we are going to have to see if everyone agrees. There are expert advisory committees that are definitely going to be debating this. It's a super unusual strategy, but we're in a super unusual situation. And the idea of leaving kids totally vulnerable when a new variant may emerge is not really appealing. You know, talking to pediatricians, especially those that work in hospitals. I mean, they just feel so helpless. The kids coming in now, they see that the vaccines are protecting the older group, five to 11 year olds, Mm -hmm. but they don't have anything for them because even, you know, we have this better situation with treatments now, but that's not for babies and really young kids. You know, that's for older people. And kids very, very fortunately are not at high risk from COVID overall. But this wave has been... Just really difficult to deal with on all levels. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the level of disruption of the classroom quarantines is is huge. It's just classrooms shut down. You get like eight emails and like your class is shut down. You have to like <laughs> run, go pick up your kid and like cancel everything you were planning to do for the next 10 days.
1: I know that you are speaking from personal experience here about how hard that can be.
0: I mean, it's extremely Disruptive. (laughs) After the break,
1: Carolyn gives advice to parents who are trying to figure out what this whole process will mean for them. We'll be right back. So when we talk about the pressure to get this group of kids under five vaccinated. How much of that pressure do you think is because of the risks to kids' health, that they are getting COVID more often or that they're getting cases that are pretty significant or severe cases? And how much is it the kind of ancillary effects of that, of kids having to not go to school and classes being canceled and kids staying home from daycare and the, the havoc that this is wreaking on the lives of parents?
0: Oh, I think this is about kids' health. I mean, the Omicron surge has been brutal. Yes, early on, there was like a debate and question about how this affected children. And fortunately, it doesn't affect children the way it affects older people. Like, that's great because, like, what a nightmare it would have been, you know, if, like, children were dying in large numbers. But I think a lot of people have overinterpreted that because it's much worse than flu, which we vaccinate children for. The hospitalizations have been worse in this younger age group during the Omicron surge. It still, of course, doesn't rival older adults in terms of their risk or anything like that. But when I've talked to pediatricians, a lot of them have described the kind of nature of the disease in young kids as different, but not like better. It's causing like bronchiolitis and croup. Some children are getting very sick from this. It's not every child, but you still have kind of an imperative to protect children. And we don't have treatments for them the same way we do now for older adults as well.
1: So obviously the profound need for a vaccine for these kids is a big part of why Pfizer and the government are moving so quickly on this. But it also seems like there's a risk here that by moving so fast before all this data has been made public that they could create the appearance that they're not being careful or contribute to more vaccine hesitancy among concerned parents.
0: Yeah, I mean it's going to be very interesting to see What happens in terms of the reception? I mean, there's certainly a segment of parents extremely eager to vaccinate their children, but it's unclear how many parents that is. One thing that I think is very striking is when I look at the data on young kids who already have access, who've had access for several months to a vaccine, five to 11 year olds, like 70% of those kids are not vaccinated at all. And That is during the peak of this Omicron surge and stuff. They became eligible in November and have been eligible through all the classroom shutdowns and whatnot of the last few months. So... You know, the question would be then: Is the interest in younger kids higher or lower? There are different factors there. Little kids go get shots all the time, literally in their first years of life. So, there may be more opportunities to kind of talk about it. But it's it's just not clear. I mean, if you if you think about it, if seventy percent of kids who are five to eleven aren't vaccinated. It means a number of families whose parents are vaccinated are probably not getting their kids vaccinated. And hmm. that's just like an interesting, it could reflect a lot of different things. It could reflect like the convenience of bringing your kid to go get vaccinated.
1: Or even if some parents feel like the vaccine is safe enough for them, that they have a, a different bar for their kids where they're like, I just want to be totally sure and I don't want to give it to them, even if I like generally believe in the vaccine.
0: Yeah, so we'll probably see some of that same hesitance in this younger age group. When they do polls, the exceptions looks kind of similar um, in the 5-to-11s versus younger kids, so we will have to see. But there has been a very vocal and aggressive group of parents and pediatricians pushing for access to happen just because they've seen what's been happening over the last, I guess, two years, and they feel like they need something to protect th- these kids.
1: So. What is your advice to parents who are looking at this and saying, should I be concerned? Should I be worried about how this vaccine is being approved? What, what is your advice to them on, on how to treat this news and how to go forward?
0: Well, right now, people can't do anything. They're going to have to wait for kind of a lengthy review process. And that's that's the normal process. And we will have to see if the expert advisors to the FDA suggest a path forward, if the FDA moves forward, you know, all of that will be very public. And um, seeing what that debate is, what the concerns are, could be informative for parents. And then the CDC will have a whole thing where they will do a similar evaluation of the data. So it'll go through many filters of kind of expert opinion. But I do think it really comes down to talking to pediatricians because honestly, like these trials are quite arcane, but like this is what pediatricians do. And so I really hope that like those decisions can be made together with parents to help them understand the benefits and any concerns about risks.
1: Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. Before we go, just one more thing. The Washington football team finally has a new name. Let's not, like, make folks wait. Let's not drag it out, Jason. What's the, uh, what is the new team name? We are the Commanders. <laughs> we are the Commanders. The Commanders. The Washington Commanders. That's right. This announcement played out live on the Today Show this morning. As you probably know, the team was previously named after a slur against Native Americans, the Washington Redskins. For years, team management dismissed pleas and protests to change the name. Finally, in the summer of 2020, companies like FedEx and Pepsi and Nike threatened to pull out of their sponsorship deals because the name was such an embarrassment. And that's when the team decided to retire it. Now there are the Washington Commanders, and the reactions have been mixed. Some people say that the new name makes them proud. Kevin Blackstone, one of our sports columnists at The Post, he said that the name is, quote, the ultimate deodorizer for a franchise that has been rolling on one scent after another in recent years to mask its growing stench, which, ouch. But one thing is still going to stay the same. Team colors will remain burgundy and gold. Fans can now pre-order Commander's jerseys, but because of global supply chain issues, shipments likely won't arrive for months. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.